open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And you were dead in your trespasses in sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, you can build your life on those two words right there, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Some of you know this verse by heart. For by what? Grace are you what? Through what? And that not of your what? It is what? Gift of God. Not by what? So that no one may what? For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. These words are the most well-known of any hymn that has ever been written. The song has been recorded thousands of times by artists as diverse as Aretha Franklin and Willie Nelson. President Obama sang Amazing Grace at the funeral for Clementa Pinckney, one of our brothers in Christ, who was a pastor at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Pastor Pinckney, along with eight other members, were murdered by a white racist in June of 2015. And at his funeral service, spontaneously, the president began to sing Amazing Grace. In moments of deepest despair, when life seemed at its darkness, people have found hope in the hymn Amazing Grace. The hymn was actually composed in 1773 by a Church of England pastor, an Anglican pastor named John Newton. He was a Church of England pastor, John Newton. And he composed it for a New Year's Day service, January 1st, 1773. He didn't have any music. It was originally a poem. And he was raised in a Christian home. John Newton was raised in a Christian home, went to sea at age 11. His father was a sea captain. His mother was a very devout Christian, but she died just before his seventh birthday. And Newton openly renounced the Christian faith and was famous among other sailors for his profanity. Now, I repeat, he cussed so badly that other sailors talked about how badly he cussed. That is an achievement. And here's what Newton said about himself at that point in his life. He said, quote, My whole life when awake was a course of most hurried 
excuse me, most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer. He's saying I cussed a lot. Not content with common oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones. He said I wasn't happy with the regular cuss words. He came up with new ones on his own. After a series of misadventures, Newton was aboard the ship Greyhound in the North Atlantic in March of 1748. He was down below the deck asleep when he was awakened by a terrible storm. Water was flooding in. The uh, sails were broken and falling down on the deck. And so the sailors began to run up on deck. And he was going up the ladder and someone from above called down to him to go back down and get a knife. And so his own story is, as he's going back down the ladder to get a knife, the guy behind him went up after him and he was washed overboard, never to be seen again. This was a terrifying storm. The he was awakened by the storm, and he went up on deck, and they began to work, and working these uh, manual pumps to try to get the water off the ship. And this is a man who was extremely far away from God, cared nothing for God, but while working the pumps in the middle of this night, as the waves are coming over the ship, and they're trying to get the water off, he said out loud, quote, if this will not do, meaning working the pumps, the Lord have mercy on us. Newton realized for the first time in many years that he had just asked God for mercy. And he was struck by his own words and his own thought. And it suddenly occurred to him, here's what he said, I thought to myself, well, what mercy can there be for me? He just asked God for mercy, but he described himself as this horrible sinner. And he said, what mercy can there be for me? Exhausted from pumping, he had worn himself out. They moved him up, and he was actually uh, steering the ship because it wasn't so exhausting. And as he's steering the ship through the night, he began to think about his situation. He cried out to the God he had cursed for mercy. And he began to pray, and he began to ask God for help. And while he was at the helm of the ship, he said, My initial thought was, as I was driving the helm of the ship, was, Here's what he said, quote, my sins were too great to be forgiven. He said, I just asked God for mercy, but then I thought, well, my sins are too great to be forgiven. But God began to work in his heart that night. And he said, quote, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of the deep waters. The date was March 21st, 21st 1748. He looked back on that as his day of conversion. And for the rest of his life, he commemorated that. We might call it his spiritual birthday. Through weeks of struggle, what began that night resulted in the conversion of John Newton. The Lord continued to work in Newton's life, and eventually he left the slave trade. He was a slaver. He's exchanging human beings for money. That's how low he was. As such, he became a staunch abolitionist. He left the slave trade and became a preacher in the Church of England and was violently opposed to slavery. His most famous disciple was William Wilberforce, the member of parliament who put Newton's convictions into action and helped end the slave trade in England. We know it by the tune that was added to it in 1835. The tune is New Britain. You, that's the tune, you know. African-American slaves added the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace. It became a theme for people wanting to end slavery in the United States. Perhaps someone here may feel like John Newton. And right now you're thinking, my sins are too great to be forgiven. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 has good news for you. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says that anyone can be saved by grace through faith. And our purpose today is to learn what it means to be saved by grace through faith. So if you will, I have uh, an outline I believe they're going to have on the screen. And here you go. God's grace, eight truths that you need to know. Eight truths you need to understand about God's grace. Don't be panicked by sermon with eight points. Don't be panicked. You, you, the Methodists, don't worry about them meeting you to Golden Corral. It's all good. So here it is. First, God's grace is entirely undeserved. Now, I'm going to spend more time on this first point. If you don't get the first point, the other seven won't make sense. And in fact, the first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describe our desperate condition. Look at it in the text. What does it say? And you were what in your transgressions? You were what? You were dead. I don't know if you've ever been around anything that is dead, but there is a stench to death. And there is a corrosive power to death. And that's why today, when someone is buried, we pump them full of formaldehyde. And so someday I'm going to die. My family is going to pay somebody lots of money to pump my dead body full of formaldehyde. And they're going to put me at the front of a church like this. And y'all are all going to walk by and look down at me and say, don't he look natural? I don't look natural. I'm dead, okay? That's not natural. I don't naturally look like I'm full of formaldehyde. And so you're going to stare at me. And, but if, if it were not for that, the corrosive power is such a thing of death. There are actually four stages of decomposition. And in the second stage of decomposition, my science is a little rusty here, but apparently there are bacteria, particularly in human intestines, that begin to morph and change in this second stage of decomposition. And that's why you stink when you die. There's a stench to death. And the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That word uh, trespasses uh, and sins, it carried together, they give the idea not of just kind of accidentally sin from a biblical perspective is not just, oh, I forgot, I meant to do better. Oh, doggone it. I, no, it is high-handed, shaking our fist in the face of God. Trespasses and sins. The word sin is very interesting. It's hamartia. It was used outside of the Bible in antiquity to refer to someone shooting an arrow and missing the mark. And so the idea is God has set a moral bullseye and we shot our moral arrow. And instead of hitting God's moral bullseye, we're up here, we're down here, we're over here. We're all over the place except where we should be. We have missed the mark. And the Bible says we are dead in our trans, uh, trespasses and sins. We are dead. And notice what else it says. In verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Do you see that phrase, the prince of the power of the air? Do you see that? That's not talking about God. That's a phrase for Satan. Because notice what it says next. The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. We're here in Kansas. Most well-known motorcycle gang in Kansas is the sons of silence. Is that, isn't that who that is? No, though, who's this guy's out of uh, Topeka? I just lost my name. Say again? Did I get it right? Say it right, brother? Did I get it right? I got it right. I had my motorcycle ministry guy back here, and I thought I made a mistake. And if you make a mistake in front of somebody that knows what they're saying, it gets embarrassing. So you, but let me just tell you, if you are in uh, outside of Christ, 
people identify by being in a gang or whatever the name of the gang is. We have the Crips and the Bloods, Sons of Silence, whoever they are. Listen, the Bible says you're already associated with a group known as the Sons of Disobedience. That's your identity. You're a part of the sons of disobedience, and the head of this gang is none other than the prince of the power there. That's Satan. Now, this is a, not a healthy description. This is not we, what we're used to hearing in our culture. Our culture says, humans are basically good. You're, you're all wonderful, and I'm okay, and you're okay. And the Bible has a completely different message. You're dead, and you're trespasses and sins, and you're working for Satan. And then notice what it says in verse 3. Your lust of your flesh. Look at this. Among whom we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. The mind, they were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice what it says. We're walking and we're following our lust. How does all this come together? You meet people that claim people are born basically good and we're morally neutral at worst. My first question is, do you have children of your own? How many of you, when you were raising your children, you, some of you dads, you took your son out in the backyard and said, this is how you throw a fastball. This is how you throw a curve. Ladies, you took your daughters out and said, this is how you hit an overhand volleyball. You took your kids out. This is how you shoot a free throw. How many of you ever had to teach them how to lie? You had to sit down with your children and say, now, Susie, Bobby, this is how you lie. Look at me. Look at me. Keep a straight face. Come up with an alibi. And even when everybody figures out the alibi is not right, stick to your alibi. Don't change your story. Even when you're, no, they just lie. You come in there and you say, have you been eating cookies? And they open their mouth and say, no, there's enough Oreos in there to feed a small village in Southeast Asia. Right? But no, they just lie. Where do they learn that from? It's human nature. We're fallen. And the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And let me just tell you, part of the problem is if you walk in your death of your sins long enough, I told you sin has a stench, right? If you walk around that stench long enough, you don't even know you smell. I was in chaplain school, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, a lovely place. If you've never been to Fort Jackson, it's lovely. It's, it, I'm teasing. It's not. It's miserable. It was the summer of 2010. It was 100 degrees every day. And um, I've not been to hell, but I have been to, to Columbia, South Carolina in the summer. And so I'm just telling you, it's a miserable place. And so they have us running around doing all this PT in the morning. And we had one member of my platoon who would not bathe. That's what I said. Oh. And so we would come into these classrooms with other platoons. They got, got all this... Uh, candidates sit in this classroom and these guys giving us these lectures during the day and they're running us around in the morning at night and doing all sorts of shenanigans with us and this guy would not bathe and so our platoon had a smell and so we were getting chewed out every day they would come to us and chew us out and fuss at us because we had a smell and so the NCOs have got us in the floor doing push-ups and flooding and last and running and all this sort of stuff because one guy in our platoon will not take a bath and we stink and I got tired of it and so I said we're going to buy that guy some deodorant. And I said, oh, you might hurt his feelings. I said, I don't care about hurting his feelings. He's hurting mine right now because I'm suffering because he won't take a bath. This really happened. So me and a guy named Jack Belcher went to the PX. We bought some right guard in the name of Jesus. And I went and knocked on that guy's door. And I said, brother, you know, we've been getting smoked by the NCOs because we have a smell. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. But I said, okay, I'm just, if it was me, I'd want somebody to tell me, brother, I hate to tell you this. It's you, Okay. And this is called right guard. Put some under this arm and some under this arm. You'll be all good. Take a shower and you'll be all good. And his answer was, it's not me. And I had to look at him and say, I promise you, it's you. Okay, I promise you, it really is you. But you understand what was going on? 
He can smell it. He had been around it so long, he can smell it. And when you live in sin long enough and you live for the devil long enough, you'll get, well, everybody else does this. I guess it's okay. You know, everybody else gets stoned like I do. I guess it's okay. Well, everybody else gets divorced five and six times like I do. I guess it's okay. Everybody sleeps around like I do. I guess it's okay. Everybody watches this filthy stuff. I guess it's okay. It stinks. It stinks. It reeks to high heaven. And God is holy. If you don't understand your sin problem, you're never going to understand grace. You'll never understand how great the grace is that John Newton was singing about if you don't understand verses 1 through 3. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus Christ gives life. But the only way you're going to understand grace is to understand verses 1 through 3. We are dead. It, we are it is grace. We are entirely undeserving of grace. You know... It says in verse 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's interesting, you're dead in which you formerly walked. Now, that's an odd situation. Normally, dead people don't walk. But here in verse 1, it says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 2, it says you're walking around in them. Did you see that? Okay. Uh, my daughter is all into this. One of my daughters is all into this program about zombies. It's called The Walking Dead. Are y'all aware of this program? I'm trying, I'm struggling. Someone who was born in 1967 is struggling to be culturally relevant at this moment, okay? So this Walking Dead, I've never seen it, but I've heard it's about zombies. It raises a natural question. When the zombies attack, which staff member at Emmanuel Baptist Church would be most likely to survive? The obvious answer is Pastor Mark. That's why, because he'll sing to them and they'll be happy and the zombies will just be happy. He'll survive. And... And Ryan and I will become dinner while Pastor Mark is over there singing Kumbaya or something but, um, to the zombies. But, you know, they actually film a lot of that movie, uh, that TV program around Atlanta. You can go to Atlanta. There are actually tours that will take you around Atlanta to show you where they filmed The Walking Dead. Listen to me. You don't have to go to Atlanta to see where they filmed The Walking Dead. Walk up and down the streets of Wichita. And listen, and it doesn't matter if you're on Broadway or Rock Road or anywhere in between. People outside of Christ, walking dead. They may have lots of money or no money. They may be living on the street. They may be living in a million-dollar mansion. But outside of Christ, they are walking dead. Just another day of death apart from Christ. We are completely undeserving of grace. It is undeserved, which leads to the amazing transition that occurs. Notice what happens. Verses 1 through 3, this is bad news. You are dead. You are walking dead. You're following Satan. You're following your lust. You're following the world. None of this is good. And if the Bible stopped right there, we would all be hopeless. But would you look at me? What are the first two words in verse 4? What's the first two words in verse 4? Say it again. What are the first two words in verse 4? You were walking dead. What? But God. But God. Here's your second point. God's grace is explicitly connected to Christ's resurrection. Let me show you this. But God. What good news. I was lost. But God. I was headed to hell, but God. My life was a wreck, but God. My sin hurt me and everybody around me, but God. Somebody help the preacher out. I was headed nowhere. I was lost. I was headed to hell, 
But God, but God. Listen, some of you this morning, if you don't remember anything else out of this sermon, you need to remember two words, but God. I don't know where your life is at, and I don't know how deep the sin runs. I've got two words for you, but God. But God, who is what? Rich in mercy. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we do deserve. God is rich in mercy. Jesus Christ made us alive. Now, I'll show you something. Look at this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. I have to show you something. Verses 1 through 7 in Greek are all one sentence. I've got some school teachers here. You would have to deduct points from the Apostle Paul. He has a run-on sentence with lots of verbs, and they don't always go together. But the main, the main verb... In the whole sentence occurs in verse 5. Do you see it there? It says, made us alive together. Do you see that verb right there? Made us alive together. It's all one word in Greek. It's the main word. It is an interesting word. That word doesn't occur anywhere else except in Christian literature. It's almost like Apostle Paul is trying to create a word to describe how awesome it is what Jesus Christ does in someone's life. He made us alive together within with Christ. And what's he driving at? He's driving at the resurrection. We're made alive together with him. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead the first Easter Sunday. And when someone is saved, Jesus Christ imparts his resurrection power and makes his person alive. I've talked to people who've bragged about some drunken, debauchery, bacchanalian weekend in Panama City, Florida. I've talked to soldiers who bragged about what they did when they went across the border to Tijuana, Mexico. And they said, man, I'm really living. Man, I'm really living. Listen, that is not living. You're walking dead. Walking dead, Jesus Christ makes alive. You will discover when you follow Christ that you, you thought you knew what life was like. Listen, Jesus gives a joy. Jesus gives a peace. When he makes us alive together with him, it is a peace that transcends all understanding and transcends all circumstances. You see, the world's joy and peace is based on the circumstance. The world will give you a concert, and as long as the concert's good, you're feeling good. But when the concert's over and you still got to pay your bills and work out your problems with your wife and your husband, the peace is all gone. Jesus gives peace that's not like that at all. The peace that Jesus Christ gives when he makes us alive with him, it transcends circumstance, regardless of what the doctor says, regardless of whether we're, uh, what they say at work about getting laid off, we have a peace that transcends all understanding, and it's because we're made alive together with him. And the grace that God gives is explicitly connected to Christ's resurrection. If Jesus Christ is still dead in the grave, there's no grace. But because Jesus Christ rose victoriously over death, hell, and the grave, there is an endless well of grace. An endless river of grace that flows. Made alive together with him. And then it's like Paul just can't stand it. He, he just stops and he exclaims, by grace are you saved. Listen carefully. Jesus Christ did not come to make bad men good. Jesus Christ did not come to make good men better. Jesus Christ did not come to make shy people more self-confident. Jesus Christ came to make dead men alive. 
That's what he does. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, God's grace is extravagant in its display. It is extravagant. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verses 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Do you see that language there? Seated us with him. Everybody see that? That is banquet language. By the way, you know in the book of Revelation it says there's going to be a banquet. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is extravagance. It's God is lavishing it. And let me show you something else. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. And look at verse 8. The New American Standard gets this right, which he lavished on us. He has lavished grace on us. Let me try to explain what this means by giving you a negative example. I have preached in a number of churches around Uh, the Midwest. One Sunday, a few years back, I filled in for a friend over in Missouri. He was a pastor in the church, which was the leading church in his particular town. And I filled in for him while he was away from the pulpit. So before the service, a little lady came up to me and said, do you have any plans for lunch? I said, no, I don't. She said, would you like to come to my house and eat? And I said, I'd be happy to. And I said, said, yes. Well, later on, several other people invited me up to go out. And I should have known something because they, they said, would you come Uh, eat with us and I said no this person over here and I called her by name has already invited me to their home and if nonverbals are any clue I knew I was in for something because the the shocked look on their face and the distressed look and and I, I knew something was up but I went and I went to her home and I want to be gracious the Bible says eat whatever's set before you right And so I I do that. Listen, I have eaten MREs in the Army. Some of them are not bad. Some of them are not bad. I've eaten Army chow. uh, Yesterday, we had a great time last night. Uh, People were singing Motown in a Baptist church. Amazing things happened. But we we had uh, Philly cheesesteak. That was awesome. I like Subway. Ryan, I'm not hard to please, right? But I was given for lunch uh, a piece of chicken and some green beans on top of some mashed potatoes and a, uh, one of those little Tupperware dishes. They had been nuked up. And the chicken and the green beans were warm and the mashed potatoes were still cold. And that was kind of thought. She said, here, eat this. And I have to tell you, I almost gagged. And by God's grace, I didn't. And I, I Lord Jesus, bless it and sanctify it. And I ate it. And and she said, all I got is leftovers. I thought, well, why did you ask me over, right? I mean, can't we go to McDonald's, quarter pounder, amen? But uh, it, was, it was a struggle. Now, listen carefully. Why do I tell you that story? When God gives you grace, he doesn't give you warmed up leftover grace. He gives you a banquet. He has seated us with Christ We are seated together in the heavenly. He's got this giant plate of grace. He's got this giant bowl of forgiveness. He's got a giant pitcher of mercy, and he just spreads it out. It's a lavish, lavish pouring out of grace. It is extravagant, and some of that extravagance is on display this morning. Look around you. You're looking at trophies of grace all around this room. Just think where some of you would be if it weren't for grace. Think where your marriage would be if it weren't for grace. Some, think where your children would be if it weren't for grace. Think where your family would be if you weren't for grace. Look at the extravagant display of grace all around you. And just look at what God's waiting to do. 
Just look, when we see someone and everybody else says their life is hopeless, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that's an opportunity to God to dem- for God to demonstrate the extravagance of his grace in that life. It's extravagant. He lavishes it on. It's not leftovers. God's grace is endless in its supply. Again, look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in in Christ Jesus. The surpassing riches here in Wichita. Wichita started by Jesse Chisholm on the Arkansas River as a trading post. And you know, in the summer, the Arkansas River may run low sometimes. I was told yesterday that they actually grade the water level in the Arkansas River when it's okay to get in and when it's not okay to get in. I was told that yesterday. That's weird. Anytime you've got to grade the water, I ain't getting in, right? But, so, uh, but sometimes the Arkansas River gets low and it goes through a drought. But listen very carefully. The surpassing riches of God's grace. There's never a drought. That's why Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria, what did he tell her? You drink from this water, you will never thirst again. The well never goes dry. It is extravagant. It is endless in its supply. It is experienced by faith. God's grace is experienced by faith. That's your fifth main idea. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Are you saved through what? Faith. Let me give you some wrong ideas about faith. Some people think faith is, well, just some wrong ideas in general. Some people think, here's how heaven works. Uh, At the end of my life, God's going to weigh all my good works and all my bad works. And if my good outweighs my bad, then I go to heaven. Or God's almost like a cosmic Santa Claus. He's making his list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Okay, none of us are nice. We're all naughty on God's list. I'll just go ahead and tell you. We're walking dead. So heaven doesn't work like that. It's not God, and, and so that's so easy. We in Baptists can teach it. We, we, we're good about rules, right? We can lay rules on people. When I was a little boy, I went to a church, and my preacher was all about rules. What you do and you don't do. Women don't wear pants to church. Oh. I remember one Sunday, my pastor started preaching about, of all things, of all the things in the world he could have preached about, he started preaching about um, this country music singer, the, the uh, saint, who was, oh, who was this? Barbara Mandrell. She, do you, do any of you remember the old country music singer, Barbara Mandrell? You can, so she had this, this TV program, a variety program on Saturday nights. And my parents loved to watch it. And so wrestling would, because we're a sophisticated family, wrestling would go off and then we'd watch Barbara Mandrell. And if we were really sophisticated, we'd watch Lawrence Welk. Ooh, and so we're, we're on Saturday night. And so one Sunday morning, Bar- Brother George goes off. He said, I'll tell you one more thing. Some of you people watching Barbara Mandrell on Saturday night, it's ungodly. She gets up there and sings a gospel song and then she sings about, you can eat crackers in my bed anytime. It's ungodly. And 12-year-old Allen's in back of church. Got it. Living for Jesus. Do not watch Barbara Mandrell. I got it. Got my rule. I got it down. Not going to do that again. The next Saturday night, the Branch family estate. Wrestling goes off. It's 8 o'clock. My parents get up. They had to walk across the room to do this and turn the channel to Barbara Mandrell. And I remember my dad was on one end of the couch. My mom was there eating a bowl of popcorn and we're watching Barbara. And I'm thinking, don't watch Living for Jesus. Don't watch Barbara Mandrell. Living for Jesus. Don't watch Barbara. I'm not going to do it. And finally, I just blurted out, Daddy, Daddy, last Sunday, Brother George said, We're not supposed to watch Barbara Mandrell. And my dad responded with brilliant words of wisdom. He said, shut up, boy. The preacher ain't here. (laughs) 
I learned a lot about being a Baptist that night. You know, there's, there's a lot goes on when the preacher ain't here. Yeah, he's just preaching, whatever. Um, but do you see what I was being taught? Rules. It's rules. I got to do this and don't do this. And I got to do this and don't do this. And I'm, I'm hoping God accepts me when the message is not by works. It's by faith. It's received by faith. It's a transfer of trust. I just believe that Jesus is enough, and I cast myself on his mercy. It's by faith. By God's grace is experienced by faith. God's grace excludes human boasting. Notice what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. No one's going to go to heaven and say, oh, look what I did to get here. Yeah, I was a missionary. That's how I got here. Yeah, I was a preacher. That's how. I... No, no boasting. We're all going to be saying, I'm here the same way by God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. It excludes human boasting. It's a gift. God's grace is exemplified in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. I have to do a little word study with you. I want to show you something. I'm going to show you two words if I can. Please look at your Bible. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's a transfer of trust. Grace is unmerited favor. Faith is a transfer of trust. By grace, unmerited favor, you've been saved through faith, the transfer of trust. And that, some translations may say this, not of yourselves. Circle that word that or this as your translation may read it. It's not really a relative pronoun in the Greek. It's really a word that means, uh, we, we can't put it in English this way. It means thisly. It means more to the point, to emphasize the point. It's to emphasize this. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Do you see that word gift right there? I want to tell you about that word gift for just a second. That is the Greek word doron. If your name is Dorothy, part of your name comes from that word. Dorothy, Dora, Dorothy, gift of God. Doron. And we know what words mean by the way they're used elsewhere. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, made about 300 years before the time of Christ, that word doron was used in Leviticus to refer to the sacrificial offerings. You got it? So when people bring their sacrificial offerings to the temple, that was doron, or to the tabernacle, doron. That's the word. The same word is used in the book of Hebrews to describe the uh, sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ. It's doron. And in this context, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he's not referring to faith as the gift. The gift is Jesus He's the sacrificial offering. Do you see what happens? In the Old Testament, what happens? The worshiper brings their offering, their lamb or turtle dove or whatever it is, and they bring it near to the tabernacle. You got the picture? But here in the New Testament, what happens? Jesus is now the Doron, the sacrificial gift. And God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as our sacrifice, the perfect atonement for our sins. God brought the gift near. What a beautiful picture that God brought the gift near to us in Jesus Christ, and it is grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unending, inexhaustible grace through the person of Jesus Christ. God's grace is exemplified in the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ. God's grace has ethical implications. Doesn't mean you can do anything you want to do. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Now listen, 
We don't do good works in order to get saved. But when you're saved, guess what? You will do good works. It's a whole different perspective. And would you notice the contrast? Look up in verse 2. Did you see this? In which you formerly walked your trespasses and sins. So in verse 2, we're walking and trespasses and sins. But then in verse 10, look, after we've received God's grace, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You're walking in something. You're either walking dead or you're walking in grace so that the good works may may show. Well, how do you bring all this together about God's grace? This amazing gift of grace that is received by faith and not by works. How do we bring it all together? A fellow uh, pastor, seminary professor at another school, his name is Timothy Paul Jones. He's a pastor and seminary professor up in Kentucky. He tells a story that brings all of this together, this idea of grace being a gift. They adopted a child who had been adopted by another family, and the family, after two years, ended the adoption and returned the child to the state. What a distressing situation. And this family that, with whom she'd been initially adopted went to Disney World a couple of times, and they left her behind. They said... You can't go with us because you've not been good enough. And they sent her off to stay with other family members. And they went to Disney World and left her behind because they said, you've been bad. You don't get to go to Disney World. She gets adopted by Timothy Paul Jones's family within just the last few years. And he announces to the family, we're going to Disney World for our vacation. And so... She starts acting bad. His adopted daughter starts acting bad. And she starts acting up. And she's uh, a holy terror in the house. And here's her mindset. Well, the other family didn't let me go to Disney World because I was bad. So it doesn't matter how I act. I'm just going to be bad. And she amped it up. And she is a holy terror in the house. And so finally, her dad, Timothy Paul Jones, sits down with her. And begins to talk to her. And she stopped him and said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me I can't go to Disney World because I've been bad. He said, no, stop. I want to ask you something. Listen, are you a part of this family? She said, yes. He said, okay, is our family going to Disney World? She said, yes. He said, then you're going. Now, there's consequences for the way you've been acting, but you're going. He said, I wish I could tell you that her behavior got better. In fact, it got worse. In fact, on the ride to Disney World, at every stop and every restaurant and every hotel, she was just tearing it up. So finally, the day comes, and they go to Disney World. They spend, she goes with, spends the entire day, too much money, uh, oversized uh, costumes of Mickey and Minnie and 120-degree heat in Orlando. Whoever put that in Orlando? I don't know, but they... Uh, they're sweating to death and had the long day, but she has the time of her life, rides all the rides, seeds all the shows. And at the end of the night, they're in the hotel room and she lays down and has got her stuffed unicorn that she got that day. It is New World laying beside her. And her daddy comes in to tuck her in and give her a good night kiss. And she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because... I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Listen, we don't go to heaven because we're good. We don't get forgiveness and a new life in Christ because we're good. We get it because we're his. 
He adopts us into his family by grace, and we are saved by grace. There's good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know where your life is at today, and I don't know what pain and heartache you brought to church today, but I'm telling you, there's an ocean of grace waiting for you to dive in. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you've thought you had to work for it, and you've had to earn it, and listen, this morning, you need to stop working for it and lay it down, and by faith, reach out and touch Jesus and let the gospel of Jesus Christ give you hope and give you life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. Miss Lisa's going to come. We'll have a hymn of invitation. Listen carefully. I want to talk to two groups of people. Some of you know that you are saved. Miss Lisa, if you'll go ahead and begin playing when you, when you get here. Some of you, every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking, no one leaving right now. This is the most important time of the service. Listen, you've been set, listen, years ago you trusted Christ, but somehow you got some mixed up ideas that somehow it was, you had to add to what Jesus had already done and you had to somehow supplement and we don't add anything. It's all by grace. And this morning, God wants to lift a burden of performance-driven Christianity off your back and just to rest in His grace. You know you're saved. And you've believed in Him. And you've been to Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And this morning, God's saying, rest in my grace. It's not by your works. Enjoy grace. Live a life of joy in grace. Now, you may be here, and you've never been saved. And if you had to say, preacher, when you talked about those walking dead, that's me. And the truth is, the stench of the devil and sin and death is all over my life. Listen, this morning, I'm going to be standing here at the front, and we're about to sing a hymn. Only trust Him, only trust Him. What a perfect hymn for this sermon. I'm going to invite you to walk forward and take my hand and say, Brother, Alan, I'm lost and I don't know Jesus, and I want to be saved. And that grace you're talking about, I want to believe in Jesus by faith. I want to do that. I want by faith to believe in Jesus. We have pastors here that will take you aside, and they're going to pray with you. I'll make sure you understand what's going to happen. If you come forward and you tell me you need to be saved, they're going to take you aside to another area. They're going to sit down with you, and they're going to pray with you and help you understand so we can nail down that it's by grace and not by works. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And while they're singing, you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for men and women, boys and girls, to be saved by grace through faith. And I pray this morning that people would believe that Jesus is enough, trusting Him and Him alone for eternal life. And I thank you, dear God, you take the burden of works off our back and the law off our back and give us the gospel of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.